So we're in a series called The Screwtape Letters. And um, for those of you who might be here for the first time, I want to tell you it's not based on a book, but we're using the book as a reference tool. Um, it was written back in the 1940s by a man named C.S. Lewis, and it's an apologetic that helps us understand it's his take on what the enemies would be doing against a man they call the patient as they try to get him off his spiritual game, as they try to knock him off of the place where he's at, as he, as he comes to faith in Christ, as he starts to grow in his faith in Christ, it's all of their endeavors, you could say, to try to rein him in or get him back into the kingdom of darkness. And so last week we talked about the character of the enemy, and really we could call this series Recon, because we've been doing a lot of recon, a lot of analysis and homework about who the enemy is and how he behaves. So last week we talked about him being a tempter, being an accuser, and being someone who is ultimately divisive in every way because he is a tempter, deceiver, and accuser. He's been deceiving from the very beginning. He's been tempting from the very beginning, and he seeks to accuse us even after we come to faith, and I would say even more so once we do come to faith in Christ. Today, we're going to talk about his methodology or his tactics. So we've looked at his character. We've gotten some information about who he is. And today we're going to talk about more along the lines of what he does in our life and in our world. Tactics are actions or strategies that are carefully planned in order to achieve a specific end. How many of you have ever been hunting? Okay. How many have ever been fishing? Okay. How many of you don't care to ever go hunting or fishing? <laughs> Some of you, you're like, why would you kill that thing? Well, um, we're not going to talk about the morale behind uh, hunting or fishing, but I started to think about the devil as a hunter. I started to think about him as a skilled hunter. Now, the scripture doesn't say that he's necessarily a hunter. It does say that he roams about like a roaring lion, a ravenous lion ready to devour whatever he can find. But I started to think about him in the idea of hunting. It's hunting season. People are going on trips. They're trying to kill things from small to large uh, that they hope to eat. I don't know why. I mean, you could just go to Outback, right, and get a good steak, like really, seriously. But um, when you think about the enemy of God being the enemy of us, God's people, we have to understand that he is like a skilled hunter who sets out traps in order for us to be ensnared. Now, this wouldn't be a hunter that sits in a tree stand necessarily, ready with a bow and arrow or ready with a shotgun. It would be more along the lines of a trapper. And in the old days, and they still practice this now, they would set out bait or something that smells good, something that's appetizing. And then they would set out traps so that the, the, um, the wolf, the bear, the whatever, would come to the place where they could smell that stuff and then they would be ensnared. What happens when they get ensnared? They'd have an, a, a limb stuck in that trap. It would be damaged and broken. They wouldn't be able to remove the trap by themselves. But I wanna talk about a spiritual nature or dimension in that same vein today because the enemy of God lays out traps for you and for I and he seeks our demise. So how many of you have ever put out a mousetrap? All right. 
If you put cheese in it, you're halfway right. They say peanut butter works better, okay? But if you've ever went and tried to trap a bear, you wouldn't put out something that was like the entrails of a deer. You would put out sweet-smelling cinnamon apples and sugary donuts and all kinds of things because they're sensitive to that smell and that's what they're looking for. If you were trying to get a wolf stuck in your snare or in your trap, and I read about this premier uh, trapper who uh, is up in Canada and he talks all about how he lays out the traps, how he does, this is pretty awesome when you think about it. He washes everything before he uses it to remove all the scent. He goes out there, he, he's surveyed the land, he's seen where the trails are, he sets the stuff up and then he waits for two or three days so that all the other scent, all the disruption is gone, everything looks natural and then he comes back in, sneaks back in and he leaves something there there as bait. And once the wolf comes in, the wolf comes in and he gets ensnared in the trap. And a wolf is looking for something that's bloody, that's fresh kill. He wants that. He, he's got that carnivorous attitude and approach. He's got to have it. And so he gets ensnared. But here's the deal. They're smarter than a lot of dogs. As I was reading, I was thinking, wow, this is really cool. Their brains have more capacity than a regular canine. And all you have to do is get one of them. And then the rest of them have seen and they've learned their lesson. And they don't go back to that same place. So they're difficult to hunt or difficult to trap. Whereas if you were out there with a fox, you could get one, get him out of the trap, put the trap back down, and another fox would come back. They don't learn the lesson. So I hope you're listening with your spiritual ears today to hear the lesson that we want to talk about. The Geico commercial, I, some of those Geico commercials are just really funny. One that cracked me up was the recent one with the raccoons. Anybody seen that? They're eating the trash. He's like, this is awful. You should try it. And the raccoon's like, what? No, I don't want to try it. He's like, yeah, it tastes like mango chutney and burnt hair because they're attracted to like rancid, nasty stuff. Gross. The enemy is not so upfront about his attractions that he wants to get us attracted to. He doesn't dangle things that might be so obvious to us. He gets one little piece of bait on the trail and we take it and we eat it, we ingest it, and then we are looking for another piece. And so we follow the trail and we take another piece and he's got a long line because he's been doing this for thousands of years with well over a billion people in his case study that he's been using all of his devices to try to trap and snare them. The enemy knows exactly what bait to use on you. That's the first point this morning. The bait that he'll use for you is different than the bait he'll use with the person who's sitting next to you. Or another person in this room may not be affected at all by the bait that he uses with you, but he uses it with you because he's been studying you and he knows you. This is the 18th letter of screw tape to Wormwood. I want to read to you. This kind of launches us in the right direction. It's from the book, The Screwtape Letters. This is the uncle who is the demon named Screwtape writing to the demon, his nephew, Wormwood. And he says this, my dear Wormwood, you must have learned at college the routine technique of sexual temptation. And since for us spirits, this whole subject is one of considerable tedium, though necessary for our training, I will pass it over. On the larger issues involved, I think you have a good deal to learn. 
the enemy, he's talking about God, the enemy's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma, either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. Ever since our father's first great victory, we have rendered the former very difficult to them. The latter, for the last few centuries, we've been closing up as a way of escape. We've done this through the poets and novelists by persuading the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable ground for marriage, and that marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent. If you get married, you should be permanently in love and have this excitement pervading your life every day. And that a marriage which does not do so eh, is no longer binding. This idea is our parody of an idea that originally came from the enemy. So they attack the patient in this portion of the book. They attack him with sexual temptation, and then they delve deeper still to erode the sensibilities that he has of the patient in the area of what he should expect in a marriage relationship. And as you read the screw tape letters, it's very interesting. The, the uncle writing to the nephew says, whoa, whoa, whoa. He, can, he might be able to find a pretty girl in church, but make sure it's the right girl because we want him off his game. We don't want him to keep going and growing in his faith. We we just want him to be happy being in love with the beauty of another person. And so, and they start to try to attack and go in that way. This is just one of the tactics of the enemy. Go with me in your Bible to Galatians chapter five. I want to read to you a short list, which is not exhaustive. I want to share with you some things from the word of God that says, um, basically that tells us what some of the tactics of the enemy are. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17 says this, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So did you hear that? He says there, walk in the spirit so that you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, when I say the word lust, some of you may go to a dark place in your mind and think, how could pastor be talking about that on a Sunday morning? Because we need to talk about it. But I'm just talking about the lust of the eyes, the lust of this life, the desires that kind of grip us and take us to dark places. He's saying there, walking in the spirit will help prevent you walking in the flesh. So verse 17, it says the flesh lusts or wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary. So jump down to verse 19. He lists out the works of the flesh. He says this, now these are the works of the flesh. They're evident. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
So like I said, it's not an exhaustive list. You might look at this and be like, hey, I am in the clear. This is awesome. I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. And I think I'm pretty good on the drunkenness and the revelries. Yeah, okay, I'm good. But when we look at this, we realize he's not giving an exhaustive list of the only sins that man or woman are capable of doing. What he's saying there, what he's trying to communicate is a wide array of things that can infect our life. So you say you could, if you were paying attention, you might have this question and say, but pastor, he says there the works of the flesh. He doesn't say the work of the enemy. He says the work of the flesh. But we've got to understand if we're part of the devil's case study and we're in that sampling of people who he is trying to get off their game, then he knows what the works of your flesh are. This is important truth for you to understand. So flesh does not equal Satan, but Satan knows what our flesh likes and what it desires. And in the midst of this, we've got to keep thinking about the hunter who knows that if he puts out a fresh kill of a deer, a bear is not going to necessarily come to that. But if he puts out something sugary and sweet that the bear can smell, he'll be coming for that. So you've got to understand the bait is out there for you and for I and for us, each one in this room, it may be different. So he talks about sexual immorality. He talks about impurity. He talks about unbridled lust. The Bible talks about something called idolatry. How many of you have ever seen, how many of you have ever been to a Chinese restaurant? The majority of us have enjoyed Chinese at some point. You may have seen a little idol. It's a little figurine, okay? It's Buddha. You can go to an Indian restaurant and you can see the goddess Krishna with all the arms and legs. You can see these little things and you say, but pastor, I'm in the clear. I don't have any of those weird little statues in my house. <laughs> the idolatry that the Israelites dealt with in the Old Testament had to do with them wanting to worship something that they could see, something that they could touch, something that they could look at. And so they would create these things. In fact, if you remember your lesson from Sunday school at some point when you were a kid, you may have heard the lesson about when Moses goes up on the mountain and he's receiving from God, what are the people down at the bottom of the mountain doing? They're melting their jewelry in fires so that they can build an idol to worship. Now we look at that and we say, y'all are stupid. Like, how could you have done that? So you don't buy a Buddha, maybe in an antique shop and put it in your house, but you do have an altar in your heart. And God is saying to the Israelites back in those days when he was correcting them, he was saying, stop worshiping those things that are made of wood and metal and stone. Worship me, even though you can't see me, you can worship me, I'm your creator. And he's always trying to get their heart back to following him. But their heart kept wanting to follow other things. The same is true of our day and time. You say, well, pastor, what qualifies as an idol? It might be different for you than it is for me, but I would say that one of your ways that you could determine what an idol is is what you think about a majority of the time. If you're concerned with your career and that's all you can think about, what decision to make for your career path? And I'm not just talking about a season of where you need to make a transition or you've got some challenges. I'm talking about if all you ever dwell on is that, then it's set up in your heart as a place of worship. 
Maybe, and I've met some parents, maybe there are parents who have their kids become their idol. They want them to be worshiped and served. No, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say I worship my kids. We wouldn't say I worship my job. But in our heart, when we're dwelling on those things and continually chasing after those things, we are doing acts of service towards those things. So God has always been about the heart. That's what Adam and Eve's problem were was in the moment of the garden. It's not that she was hungry for an apple. We'll call it an apple. It says it was a fruit, but it's not that she was like, gosh, I'm so hungry. I just can't take it. I'm going to starve to death. This is the only tree I can reach with my faint body before I pass out. I've got it. No, she wasn't doing that. It was a choice in her heart to listen to the deception and to follow through with it. So we've got to understand when we say, oh, I think I looked at that list and I'm clean, we might not be as clean as we think we are. Hate. You ever experienced hate or been the victim of hate? Strife, discord, disunity, competitions and rivalries, anger and rage. When I talk about anger, I'm not talking about righteous anger that you're mad that the things aren't being obeyed and followed according to God's word. I'm talking about rage that happens in a physical realm, in a physical nature. It says here that's bad. It's a work of the flesh. We talk about selfish ambition. Did you know division is a work of the flesh? When churches get divided, it's a work of the flesh and a work of the enemy. Envy. What is envy? Well, I don't really struggle with that, I don't think. Listen to what it means. It's the feeling of discontent that's aroused by someone else's possessions. Listen, when I see that nice car drive by, sometimes I struggle with envy. Each one of us has a certain thing that the devil will continue to harp on. But there's victory possible, amen? This, there's good news in this message today. It's not just about what the enemy does as his tactic. It's how we can dethrone those things that we worship. It's how we can separate ourselves from the anger and the frustration. It's how we can get to the place of asking God for his help and his grace in order to live according to the way he wants us to. So, if it's not Christ who sits on the throne of your heart, the devil's strategy is working. That's something important for us to know. And also, we talk about that list, but there are other things that are not mentioned there. It's important to hold up the mirror of God's word to your own life in these moments, to recognize what your life looks like, and to recognize the tactics of the enemy at work, and to know how to war against him. I've had some arguments with my spouse. Any of you ever had an argument with your spouse? Yeah. We recognize the enemy wants to divide marriages. He wants to divide churches. He wants to sow discord. He wants you to be unhappy. I got news for everybody that's in the news these days. Jesus didn't die to make you happy just so that you would feel good about what's going on. Life stinks sometimes. Horrible things happen to people even who love God. But the point of it is this, to have him with us, walking with us through every trial, every tribulation, because we know that his grace is sufficient in our weakness, that his strength is made 
perfect in our weakness, that in those moments we can trust him. He's never let us down and never will. But it's a major tactic of the enemy to divide relationships. And here's what he wants to do. He wants to use your flesh against you. There are some people who think, well, humanity is virtually pretty good. I mean, it's just kind of the wackos that lose their their mind and go crazy and kill people or hurt people. No, the Bible says we all stink, that our righteousness, our attempt to even observe or get God's grace, it's like filthy rags. There's nothing, no man, no woman that's good in and of themselves. The Bible says that my heart is deceitfully wicked. I can look in that mirror as as ugly as I am and tell myself I am a wonderful believer. I always choose righteousness. I always do good things. That great idea was not God's idea. It was my idea. I can have that if I'm not paying attention to the word of God. And if I hold that up as a mirror, I've got to see that my flesh is, it's like the mango chutney and the burnt hair. <laughs> okay. It's like the worst of the worst. Can you even imagine He wants, the enemy wants to get us off our game and he'd love to see us derail ourselves. Think back with me to the words of Job or not the words of Job, but the situation of Job. The Bible clearly says in Job chapter one that Satan is in the presence of God and God says, where have you been, joker? And he says, I've been going back and forth throughout the earth. I've been eyeballing all your people. And he says, well, have you seen Job? He's an awesome man of God. Man, I tell you what, he's righteous in everything he does everything he says. It's incredible. And the enemy says this. He says, oh, you just give me one shot. Just let me take away that blessing that you put. Just let me have one shot and we'll see if he still praises you. The enemy is out to derail us and he even wants to use our own fleshly devices against us. The enemy's been doing it for a long time and our flesh is also an enemy to the work of God in our life. You've got to understand that you're not that good in order to know what you're fighting against because you're not just fighting the enemy outside. There's an enemy within. There's a flesh in you that wants to rise up in moments of weakness, that wants to take what you didn't get or earn, that wants to go the extra mile when you shouldn't. And so in a bad way is what I'm saying, but you know, take it to another level. He wants to get us off our game and he wants to use our flesh and we've got to see our flesh as an enemy to the work of God in our own life. We've got to understand his tactics involve using us against ourselves. Let me explain something to you this morning. At salvation, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit enters the heart and enters into the life of the one who repents from their sin and believes in Jesus Christ. Then the Holy Spirit enables us to make choices that are of the Spirit rather than of the flesh. Like we just read in Galatians when he says, walk in the Spirit. That's not magic, potion, wand, or pill. That is a conscious decision and an effort on my part to walk in the Spirit. 
So we've got to understand that the Spirit helps us to do that. God's Word tells us that we're to be considered as crucified with Christ. Further on in Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20, it says that we are crucified with Christ and yet we live. Then in another place, Romans chapter 6, it says that our old sin nature is dead and somehow he gets resurrected all the time. And there are lots of believers who are confused about this and they blame their sin on the devil when their sin is an issue of their flesh. The reality is we still live in human flesh and in a physical realm. In fact, understanding this is where Paul, the apostle, is writing to the church. And when he writes to the church at Rome, he's writing to them in chapter seven. If you want to go there with me, I'm going to read a few verses. He's telling them about the battle that still rages inside of his own life. The apostle Paul who served the cause of Christ, who went the distance for Christ, yet he still had issues with his flesh and his desire. Look at Romans chapter seven, verse 21 to 24. It says this, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Talking about his physical body, like his tongue, his hands, his feet. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So we might have heard that portion of scripture before about You know, he's got this battle going on inside too. The things he wishes he could do, he can't do. The things that he shouldn't do, he is doing. He's talking about his flesh still being very much alive. He's talking about the enemy who's using the devices of his flesh against him. So your strategy to live in victory and to live untrapped by the enemy is really, it's encapsulated in one single word. If it's the point and the one word I could give you today, I want to tell you that word, many people today in our society treat it as a dirty word, but it's not. In fact, it's a healthy word that will help you live clean in a dirty world. Many people want to enjoy its benefits, this one word's benefits, but they don't want to put in the hard work that comes along with this word. Can you guess what this word is? If we're talking about the flesh, if we're talking about there is a real enemy and he's using my flesh against me, that one word is discipline. People think it's a dirty word. It's not a dirty word. To live a disciplined life is to live a wonderful life. To have discipline of your flesh and to be able to say no to a cupcake is wonderful power. To be able to say, no, I will not get angry. I've struggled with anger and this moment I am saying no. To say, you know what, I have been divisive before and I've always chosen to believe the worst about people, but in this moment, I'm choosing life and I'm not going to do that. That's discipline. And I'm gonna give you good news. God gives you the power to live a disciplined life through his Holy Spirit. So you say, pastor, it seems like this dichotomy or this thing that's going in between, vacillating between works and grace. Didn't you say that Jesus did it all? He paid it all? Yes, but you've got a lot of work to do after you've received salvation. This life is work. 
Everything that we have in our life that we face as choices, we have the right and the ability to choose. So God wants to empower us to choose right choices. So has our eternity been secured by the blood and the body of Jesus Christ and his resurrection? Absolutely. But our day-to-day life, God isn't just waving magic wands over you and saying, oh, no temptation for you today. No temptation for you today. He's not doing that. The enemy is still real, your flesh is still real, and the Holy Spirit wants to give you the power, the Bible tells us, to be able to live in victory. And one of the ways we do that is that word discipline. I watched a video this week that was disgusting. It showed a current event of a teacher in a city, and it was taped, it was recorded by a student in the room. She loses her cool. If you haven't seen the video, you'll know what I'm talking about in a moment. She loses her cool in this classroom with junior high students and high school students. And she's trying to get one to leave the classroom. He's lost his cool. There's a battle of wills going on. She says some horrendous things to these students. And these students kind of are rising up because they're like, we can't take this. And she's saying, I can't take this. And it's just this back and forth attack that's happening. And the caption underneath and in the article, it said, classroom management is a real challenge for teachers this, in today's day and age. And I thought to myself, because my wife is a teacher, She has fifth and sixth grade students in a Christian school. And guess what? They're hard to manage sometimes. It's easy to raise your voice. It's hard to get them to pay attention. And so she struggles with this item called classroom management. There are books about it and all this other stuff. But here's the point of what I'm trying to say. When I read that article and when I saw that video, I thought to myself, you know what? Classroom management is an afterthought. It's discipline in the home that's lacking, not only for that teacher, but for those students. If they were disciplined and lived a life where they were told no at one point or another, then they would be able to submit into a system of education like she's trying to provide to them. She lost her cool. Not right. Not okay. Absolutely not. They lost their cool. Not right. Not okay. But in this moment, they can't fix anything because they've lost it somewhere along the journey. We've started to get to the place where we don't discipline our kids. We see in this world today that people are lacking that. They're not told no. They are told, yes, you can have it. And I understand giving them that ambition and that dream. Anybody, anybody can be the next president of the United States. Anybody, okay? That was a joke. Did anybody get that? All right. Literally, they said that in school for all these years, and now we're seeing it, okay? Anyone can, but there is a certain level of understanding that we've got to have discipline in our life. The Bible talks about Proverbs and in Psalms. It talks about us having discipline, leading a disciplined life. Saying no when we want to say yes is not a bad thing. Saying yes when we want to say no is not a bad thing. If you're looking at the understanding of discipline, So it's not classroom management. It's not sin management. It's discipline. We said, and I I just hinted at it a few minutes ago, I said last week, the devil is one guy and you're not big enough for him to be seeking you out individually, personally. But he's got lots of minions who are doing his work. 
They're concerned with our demise. And if we don't live a disciplined life, we'll never pick up their scent. We'll never see the divisiveness that that comes into a church as being a work of the flesh that's rooted in something of the enemy if we don't wake up and pay attention. The work of Christ alone is what gets you into the kingdom of God. But to serve the king, you have work to do. And some of that involves the inner work of discipline so that you continue to be fit for the master's use. You can talk to anybody who's a recovering alcoholic or someone who struggled with substance abuse. You can talk to them about the steps they've taken in the programs and how they continue to have accountability throughout the rest of their life. They may have been a drunk and an alcoholic for years and now they're clean. But when they have a struggle, when they have temptation, they've got a choice to make and they make that choice, whether it's good or bad. And they talk to the accountability that's around them. God has given us a system of accountability in the body of Christ to encourage one another. My job, the Bible tells me, is to equip you for the work of the ministry. And that's also things like this, to understand who you are in Christ. Who you are in Christ is beautiful. He loves you with a passion and a love that no one else can, with the sweetest love like we sang about earlier. And he wants your blessing in this life to lead to a healthy place. He's not out to bless you with a Cadillac and a million dollar salary or, hey, why not just a million dollar bank account without having to work? That'd be awesome, right? He's not out to do that in your life. He's out to help you with everyday life, though, and every struggle you face because he wants to walk with you and work with you. I want you to hear me this morning. The work of Christ alone is what gets you into the kingdom of God. But in order to serve Christ, there's much work to be done inside of yourself even after salvation. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and this is my last place in scripture. Hebrews chapter 12. And I, w- I wanted to close with this because I thought it was so, um, so powerful and it speaks right to what we're talking about, his tactics. Hebrews chapter 12, you may know, comes after Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11 is a place in scripture called the hall of faith. Not fame, but faith. It is a hall of fame as well of those who had faith and God did amazing things through those people. But then verse uh, one of chapter 12 continues this thought and it says there here, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Okay, stop there for a second. Listen to me. There's a great group of people who've gone before you is what he's saying. We're surrounded by those people. Those people are in heaven. Those people have run the race before us and they've become victorious. They were, and here's the, here's the hope I have. They were all screw ups. There's a prostitute and a liar and an adulterer mentioned in chapter 11. You should check it out. They were all screw ups, but God love them. He used them and they allowed him to use them. So here it's saying in the first part of chapter 12, it says, we're surrounded by these people who've gone on before. We've got this pressure on us because heaven is looking at us. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Did you see that? So easily ensnares us. It's like that sugary donut. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author 
and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So he gives us that hope in those first few verses. And he says, Christ paid the penalty. He went the distance. He struggled with sin even to the point where he gave his blood and his very life in order to give us life and it more abundantly. Christ showed us what discipline looks like. When he's in the garden and he's praying to the Father, if there's any other way to do this, please do it. If not, I'm still submitting to your will. That is discipline. And if we're talking in military terms and we're using these terms like tactics and recon, we've got to understand it's the discipline that happens in the training that helps win the war. It's when you don't have a temptation that you should be reading the Bible and arming yourself. Next week, we're gonna talk about what the armor of God really is and what it stands for in the believer's life. But we've got to see that training is so important. I was watching some videos this week for this sermon and I was watching some military people who were training in live environments radical the way that they trained, incredible the way that they trained in order to, in a moment, in a shed somewhere in Arizona while they're practicing, get enough in them that discipline comes out when they're on the battlefield in somewhere else and they see things and they have to take care of objectives and they have to help try to win the war. It started way back in boot camp. So, James chapter four, verse seven says this, and I'm gonna close with this thought. James chapter four, verse seven says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Look at yourself in the word of God. See yourself as that believer who does have the power in and of yourself to seek God's help and his grace in those moments. We, we've read in this series and we know that the word of God says that he does allow more than I can handle in my life, but he won't allow me to be tempted more than I can handle. He'll always give me a way of escape. In, in the moment of yes or no, he'll always give me the power I need to make the right choice. And he's provided everything for me. Would you stand with me today? Submit to God. How do you submit to him if you don't listen to him? How do you submit to him if you're not reading his word? How do you submit to him if you're not asking for his help and his guidance in this life? We've got to submit to God and then we do have to resist the devil.